like people come for you on Twitter yes. all the time. Like, yeah, what attracts the most ire? I mean, honestly, I think the biggest uh, attraction of ire is that I'm a loud black woman and I don't apologize for it. I'm lady loud. Welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And that was Amani Gandhi, aka at Angry Black Lady, for those of y'all who follow her on Twitter. Imani's a self-described recovering attorney and senior legal analyst for Rewire News. She also co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered. You mean Boom Lawyered? Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely. I'm here for the sound effect, Caroline. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, like, I'm a little obsessed with her and basically hang on her every tweet. I mean, I love knowing that when I open Twitter, I'm going to see her with, like, a masterful takedown of some idiot or some incredible take on something in the news or, you know, I don't know, like, just talking about how she's having rage tacos for lunch. And true to her diet of rage tacos and her Twitter handle— Imani is pissed. But more than that, she just has no desire to hold back anymore. Since I left private practice and left that life, I decided, you know, I'm just going to live out loud, (laughs) to quote like a Queen Latifah movie. You know, I'm just going (laughs) to live out loud and be who I am, be unapologetically Black and stand up for the things that I believe in. For Imani, part of standing up for what she believes in is documenting and distilling the news as it happens, particularly around social justice issues like reproductive and LGBTQ rights. She's constantly working, and tweeting, let's be honest, to sound alarm bells on legal issues that might otherwise get lost in our news feeds. So today, we're going to get to know this unladylike legal expert to better understand how she does that and how, like Imani, we can also stand up for what we believe in and speak truth to power, regardless of whether we went to law school. Grab your gavels. Growing up, Imani imagined herself headed not for the courtroom, but to the orchestra pit. I was a musician in college, all through growing up in college. I played the clarinet, and so I thought I was going to be a classical clarinetist. Um, Went to Oberlin College, studied music there, and then I took my first con law class, I believe my sophomore year, and I was constitutional law. And I was hooked from that point on. Um, And so I sort of resolved to go to law school, and at first, you know, I went to Oberlin, so it's a very hippy-dippy kind of place. And, you know, it's the kind of place you, you come out of wanting to help people and save the world and do good things. You know, and then you get to law school and they beckon you with a ton of money. <laughs> so I was like, ah, maybe I'll just take the money. I started out just sort of, you know, excited about just making money and being a lawyer in Los Angeles and sort of that whole kind of fancy L.A. I have a Michael Kors purse and I'm wearing high heel shoes every day to work <laughs> type thing. And I realized after a while that's not why I originally went to law school. I actually went to, to help people. Imani didn't have to wait long to work on helping people. The universe stepped in and... She got laid off. And my response was, really? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I negotiated my six-month severance, and I decided I'm going to take this time to try and work on my writing and blogging. 
With that, Imani launched Angry Black Lady Chronicles. And the blog title didn't just come from how fed up she was with the political landscape. She also had a pituitary tumor that screwed with her hormones, sending her into occasional rage spirals. And y'all, that's not like a bad PMS joke I'm making. But the thing is, even once she got those hormones under control, the world was still a really rage-inducing place. At the same time... Um, It was 2011, so it was right around when the Tea Party explosion of abortion restrictions was sort of going bananas. And I found myself as a lawyer becoming really frustrated trying to follow what was going on with all of these laws and these cases, because a lot of the people writing about them aren't lawyers, weren't trained lawyers. So sometimes they would get certain little details wrong that actually matter when you're talking about analyzing legislation and decided, well, I'm going to start following this stuff myself. And so I I sort of became radicalized just by being irritated by the media (laughs) and by the way in which these, um, you know, reproductive health was being talked about. What was it about constitutional law that really hooked you? Um, Well, it's just, you know, all of our rights are being won or lost in the courts and, and how the Constitution is interpreted and whether or not you interpret it using, you know, an originalist framework, which is what Scalia and a lot of the conservatives do, which is to say that, you know, the Constitution is frozen in amber at the time when it was written. And so any other rights that... Um, come up in terms of whether or not certain rights will be constitutional or not, you have to look back to what the framers would have thought. And I think that's just absurd because when the Constitution was written, Black people were three-fifths of a person. So in my book, obviously, we cannot rely on what a bunch of old white dudes in tights back, you know, three, <laughs> 200 years ago would have thought about, you know, I don't know, police brutality in Black communities. Like, it's just, there's just some things that I think some issues that have come up, cultural touchstones that I don't think the framers would have ever contemplated. And so trying to interpret the Constitution based on these old archaic notions of what constitutional law is seems foolish to me. Um, And in that particular class, what really got me the most was Bowers v. Hardwick. Okay, Caroline, I had to Google that. And (laughs) Bowers v. Hardwick is a 1986 Supreme Court case that upheld a Georgia anti-sodomy law that criminalized oral and anal penetration. And it wasn't even overturned until 2003. And I just found it really fascinating that, you know, the government, especially conservatives who love to talk about small government, but the small government doesn't apply when you're talking about sexual relationships between consenting adults and and adults making decisions about their own bodies. You know, women making decisions, pregnant people making decisions about their bodies. So government is always sort of small enough to fit in someone's bedroom and in someone's uterus. But aside from that, when it comes to you know, social programs, quote unquote, entitlements that are meant to help people raise the kids that the government wants us desperately to have. It's sort of the conversation changes to, well, you know, we can't be giving out free handouts and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So that I mean, that's what where my interest in the law was born. And I think that's where I think the rights of a lot of people are going to die on the vine. I mean, I, I unfortunately think that where we're going with the court system in this judiciary People are in trouble. A lot of people are in trouble. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my, I feel like my understanding of the Constitution and my understanding of constitutional law, if I can break those concepts down for people and help them understand, then I feel like I've done my job. That's what, you know, Jessica mason Piclo, who's like my work wife and partner in crime, we've been trying to do over the past couple of years is let people know 
explain legal concepts to people in layperson's terms so they understand them and so that they can understand if they haven't gone to law school, what it means when a law is blocked and what it means when a law is enjoined or what it means when a case has been stayed pending a Supreme Court ruling, all of these sort of what seem like really legalistic technical terminologies can be explained in real plain English so that everyone can understand it. Um, And I think lawyers generally tend to be super pompous and snobby. Um, And I think there are a lot of journalists who are writing about the law now who are writing for each other more so than for an audience. And so what Jessica and I try to do is write for our audience, write for non-lawyers so that they will understand instead of just writing for each other and nerding out. I mean, Jess and I can nerd out all day on the law, but we want other people to nerd out with us. So that's why we're trying to (laughs) sort of spread the legal love. And so what can the rank and file feminists who aren't lawyers or who aren't, you know, in the White House, what can we do in terms of these rights that are being won or lost in the courts? I mean, the best thing to do, I think, is to to understand what to understand the issues, right? To understand how the court systems work, how it is that cases move their way through the courts. I mean, in terms of what you can do to prevent some of these whack jobs from being elevated to the bench, not much, but just generally because of this fire hose of fuckery that has been going on for the past year and a half, there are certain things that are sort of skating under the radar. And I think the confirmation of these really regressive, horrible judges is one of those things that is floating under the radar. And I'm not sure what there is to be done about it other than when these confirmation hearings come up to make a lot of noise, to call your senator, to make sure that your Congress people understand that, you know, you don't support these sorts of laws. You don't support these sorts of judges. I guess, well, senators are the ones who confirm judges. So call your senators to oppose certain (laughs) judges. But generally, I mean, I think that studies have shown over the last year and a half that women have been the most sort of active in, in terms of resisting individual policy positions or policy proposals that the Trump administration has been making. So I think just continuing that, realizing that writing letters may seem super archaic, but it actually works, you know, making phone calls, sending faxes, all of those things actually work. And those are the sorts of activities that women have been um, have been leading Education and just being loud, you know, not letting people shut you up, not letting this sort of new backlash against feminism prevent you from continuing to do the work that you believe needs to be done and to say the things that you that you believe need to be said. So what are some of the top issues right now that folks should be sort of looking out for? I would say um, definitely religious imposition, the weaponization of the First Amendment, Um I think that people are really way too confident that um, that LGBTQ people are going to be fine in this country. I think that that they are not fine in this country. Um, and I think that if, if given an opportunity to, I think that they will undo, I think conservatives will attempt to undo the same-sex marriage uh, ruling in the court. So I would be aware of that. I guess I, another thing that people aren't really talking a lot about in mainstream media is just the ways in which reproductive justice and immigration um, dovetail, right? I think with especially with respect to these, these uh, undocumented minors who are being prevented from having abortions because this one jackass at the Office of Refugee Resettlement has decided that it is up to him personally to decide whether or not a 16-year-old who was raped should be able to get an abortion. So I think that... 
Overall, I think people need to be more aware aware about how all of the bullshit that Trump is doing intersects with other things, right? Reproductive justice intersects with immigration rights, which intersects with the fight for Medicare for all or some other form of universal health care. I think the problem in this administration is keeping your eye on all of the balls. And so one of the best way to keep your eye on all of the balls is to figure out a way in which all of those balls, balls balls is a bad analogy (laughs) because balls don't intersect. (laughs) But but if you had balls that intersected, I would think of focus on the ways in which all of those issues come together. So then you could find that one sort of meta issue that under which all of the other issues fall. For our unladylike purposes today, that meta issue really is the weaponization of the First Amendment, as Amani puts it. And since I'm not a con law expert, Caroline, I got to admit, I need a little refresher on what it says. The First Amendment, you know, the whole I, I know it's like freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Uh, don't cut in lines. <laughs> don't pay with a check at the grocery store. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. God, how many grievances do you have to redress? Uh, I've got a whole wheelbarrow. I've got a dress of them. I've got a closet full of grievance dresses. I've got a whole Goodwill stash of them. When we come back, we're going to talk to Amani about how that freedom of speech and religion is getting twisted in the courts to ultimately punish women and marginalized groups. Stay with us. We're back with reproductive justice warrior Amani Gandhi. And Amani might call herself angry black lady online, but she knows that to stop the so-called firehose of fuckery happening in our legal systems, you gotta do something with that anger. And Amani has. In 2011, when she got laid off from that Lux corporate law job and started the Angry Black Lady Chronicles, she also put her legal muscle to work for the greater good. Or, to be more specific, the greater uterus. And there was plenty of work that needed to be done for the greater uterus back in 2011 because when the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, was enacted in late 2010, it set off a wave of anti-abortion hysteria of more than 60 anti-abortion bills introduced in state legislatures the following year. Dang. Yeah, so 2011 really was a hellscape for reproductive justice. I I became frustrated on behalf of people who were frustrated that Fights in their states were going unnoticed. There was a huge personhood push in Mississippi, I believe it was 2010, 2011, that kind of flew under the radar. And there was so much activism, so much grassroots on the ground activism going on in Mississippi. And people just kind of look at Mississippi and think, well, it's Mississippi, what do you expect? But if we start looking at states as being, well, what do you expect? Let's just forget that and only work on the states where we think that we have a chance. Then anti-choicers end up sort of using these states as petri dishes and then the shit just spreads from there. So I think the most surprising thing was how much people really do sort of deride states that they consider to be not worth fighting for. And I think that the more that we fight for the states that are introducing these types of legislation, the better off we'll all be. 
So Amani launched a project she called Team Uterati to crowdsource reproductive health care and abortion, or honestly, like anti-abortion legislation in every state. That ended up evolving into Rewire News' legislative tracker. And as you might guess, there's never really a lull. I asked her specifically about a six-week abortion ban bill that Iowa's governor signed into law in early May. Yeah, I mean, the thing with these six-week and and the 20-week bans, states will introduce six-week bans around the same time that they introduce 20-week bans. And so after everyone freaked out about the six-week, because that's flatly unconstitutional, people were like, well, how about 20 weeks? That's more of a compromise. And so then it seems more reasonable when anti-choicers let us have 20 weeks Mm -hmm. by saying, okay, fine, we're not going to cut it off at six weeks. When really... Both six-week bans and 20-week bans are unconstitutional. What they're really trying to do is attack the science. They're trying to attack the 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 point of fetal viability. That's the Roe v. Roe versus Wade says you have a constitutional right to abortion up to the point of fetal fetal viability, which is about 24 weeks. And so if they can roll back the point of fetal viability to 22 weeks, 21 weeks, 20 weeks. That means then that it becomes more feasible for them to enact bans that are less than 20 weeks. So maybe we'll have 18-week bans, 17-week bans. Mississippi just introduced a 15-week ban. I mean, they're just banning abortion at just random time periods in the hopes that there will be a baby somewhere that survives at 15 weeks and then suddenly another one and another one and then pretty soon viability starts at 15 weeks and we can ban abortion at that time. And ultimately, what I think these... These laws are doing is they're just providing test cases to overturn Roe. And so I think they're continuing to just pass these laws and waiting for these lawsuits to be filed. And they're just litigating on all fronts in the hopes that one of these cases is going to make it to the Supreme Court and is going to continue. He's either going to reverse Roe entirely or certainly continue to chip away at Roe and chip away at access until the point at which Roe has virtually no meaning, because even though you have the right to an abortion, you can't get one anywhere because of all of these regulations. And meanwhile, like we're seeing all of these so-called crisis pregnancy centers popping up all over the country. There are like more than 4,000 now open in the U.S. Yeah. Um, What is up with those things? Crisis pregnancy centers, they are, I mean, if there's one thing that anti-choices are good at, it's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) And crisis pregnancy centers are just bullshit. They will, they'll lie to vulnerable women. They literally pop up these pregnancy centers near Planned Parenthoods using the similar acronyms, right? So it'll be like people for pregnancy. So you think, yeah, I'm going to a PP. I'm going to Planned Parenthood. No, you end up in some random crisis pregnancy center where the first thing they do is lie to you. They'll lie to you about how far along you are so that, so that your window for an abortion will basically dissolve. They will lie to you about, um, abortion causing suicide ideation or breast cancer, or they'll say, you know, if you have an abortion, you might not actually be able to have children because abortions make you infertile. They really just lie and lie and try to entrap and trick women, and particularly the most vulnerable women who are, you know, maybe teenagers, young women, poor women, low income. I mean, these aren't white middle class and upper class women that are going to crisis pregnancy centers. These are people who are looking for oftentimes free consultations, free solutions, a pregnancy test, maybe an ultrasound, but they're not looking to be proselytized to. And that's what these crisis pregnancy centers do. And what's even more disturbing about it is that certain states are siphoning money from publicly funded programs and funneling it into these crisis pregnancy centers. 
centers. So in a, in effect, taxpayers are paying for these fake clinics to lie to women and to to feed them false information and to essentially strip them of a choice that they have a constitutional right to make. So how are they legal with all of the sneaky bullshit they pull? How are they legal and how can we get them shut down? Um, well, right now, you know, there's the case, the, the NIFLA v. v. Becerra, the National Institute of Family Life Advocates um, v. Becerra. And it's a case that is challenging uh, the Reproductive Fact Act in California, which is simply a law that requires all clinics that serve that serve pregnant people to say what they do, right? Crisis pregnancy centers are saying that by being required to announce to their patients that A, they are or not uh, licensed doctors, and B, that California offers a full panoply of services that that particular clinic may not, they are saying that that infringes on their First Amendment right. They're saying that that is forcing them to to express a positive policy position about abortion. And the problem is, is they're just really, they're really, really well-funded I mean, there's not a whole lot of funding on the left when it comes to abortion rights and um, family planning. But on the right, when it comes to to hindering abortion rights and to stopping family planning and to promoting, you know, abstinence instead of, uh, you know, comprehensive sex education, there's tons of funding for that. So there's something like in California, I think there's something like 220 crisis pregnancy centers and only 22 abortion clinics. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Just like, what do you say to that? Um, And, you know, and these CPCs are fighting to continue to be able to lie to people and to continue to be able to take taxpayer money so that they can lie to people. So here you have a bunch of people who don't think that taxpayer dollars should go to fund abortion, but they do think taxpayer dollars should go to lie to women who may be seeking an abortion. It's just... Well, and how, from a legal perspective, can misrepresenting yourself be protected by the First Amendment? I think from a legal perspective, it's also bullshit. This weaponization of the First Amendment, I think, is probably one of the biggest sort of legal issues of the time because it it is affecting so many different walks of life. It affects the way whether or not trans people can use the bathroom. It affects whether or not LGBTQ people can adopt children, can get married. It affects whether or not a baker can bake a cake for a gay person or a floral shop can provide flowers for a same-sex wedding. All of these things are being sort of swept under the rubric of the First Amendment and under this idea that that you are permitted because you have sincerely held religious beliefs. You are permitted to discriminate against people because those people don't fit your religious morality or your, your religious worldview. When in reality, the CPC issue is just a consumer protection issue. What all it is, is just making sure that as a consumer, if you walk into a clinic, you know where you're going, you know what to expect and you know what services are or are not provided and the services that are not provided, here's where you can get them. It's not just like the the actual physical clinics themselves, but I have ended up accidentally on one of their websites, just like Googling around for abortion facts and being like, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they spend a lot of money to make sure that if you enter the word abortion or pregnant into Google search, their CPCs will come up first. I mean, the lie begins like right from when you are actually just you decide to open your phone and look for a place. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's how sneaky they are. And the idea that this is a they have a first amendment right to lie to people is baffling to me and frankly 
I find it seems like such a slam dunk to me, but I have no idea how the court's going to rule. I mean, I I cannot imagine that the court is going to say, sure, it's fine for you to lie to people. But who knows? I mean, it's really it really all depends on whether or not Kennedy has a good breakfast that day, I think. (laughs) (laughs) That would be Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy's breakfast she's talking about. He's a swing vote on the bench and we hear he likes muffins. (laughs) It's really one of the most, I think it's one of the most depressing things that the right, that all of our rights are in the hands of this one old white dude who really doesn't like abortion, but sometimes feels compelled to side with the prop, with the, you know, the actual sensible side, you know, the, the, the liberal wing of the court. I mean, he, he often sides with them, but he really doesn't like abortion. And I think that the anti-choicers know that. So they're trying to put cases up before him that will sort of tickle his, I hate abortion bone. Well, so rolling back to the First Amendment discussion, there's that case Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Yeah. So essentially, Masterpiece Cake Shop has to do with a Colorado um, civil rights ordinance that prohibits discrimination against gay people. Um, And a gay couple walked into a a bake shop uh, and wanted to order a cake for their wedding. And the baker is claiming that um, his cakes are expression, that he is expressing his views, his First Amendment views through his cake baking. So basically he's saying his cake is speech. Um, it's ridiculous. And it's the same thing with there's a florist in New Mexico that didn't want to serve gay people. And so instead of just saying, hey, you know what, we don't want to serve gay people and maybe trying to get a law saying it's okay to discriminate against gay people. And it's not a far-fetched thing. I mean, it's not far-fetched to be able to go to your legislator and be like, hey, you know what, we want a law that says we can discriminate against gay people because that's going on all over the country. But instead of doing Mm -hmm. that, he decided to make this whole First Amendment kerfuffle about it. And so now we're going to get a a ruling um, at the end of the month, at the end of next month, as to whether or not you can refuse to serve gay people on First Amendment um, grounds because if I'm baking a cake for this gay couple, then I'm essentially saying that I agree with the quote unquote gay agenda or big gay or whatever it is that they would call it. <laughs> and it's just kind of like I, I'm going to go on record. I'm going to go on record. I totally support big gay. I am all on board for big gay. You know, I, I'm I'm all on board for it. But it's 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 hard to understand as logical people. I mean, you said that people, you know, I think that we here are logical and probably the people listening to your podcast are logical. It's really hard to wrestle with the sort of inherent foolishness of saying, instead of saying, I just really don't like gay people, I want to be able to discriminate, turning it around and saying that, oh no, I'm I'm speaking through my cakes. I mean, it's just it's 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 nonsense. But the problem is, is we've got this sort of society where the the feelings and values of Christians are being prioritized over the feelings and values of everyone else, including other religions. And so I, you know, we're sort of marching slowly and exorably towards Gilead, towards a world where you can't be gay, towards a world where you have to maintain pregnancies. The the Handmaid's Tale, that whole that society, I find it, I find that we're closer to that than a lot of people would like to think. Hey, y'all, Kristen here with a quick Supreme Court update, because since we talked to Imani, they handed down their decision in favor of the masterpiece cake shop guy. And Justice Kennedy, the swing justice who needed the good breakfast. Yeah, well, we don't know what he ate because he wrote the majority decision. But in it, he stated, quote, the outcome of cases like this in other circumstances must await further elaboration in the courts. 
translation, this whole issue of the First Amendment being weaponized to discriminate against people, this legal battle, y'all, it's just beginning. Oh, God. Well, okay, let's take a break before people start handing out red robes and white bonnets. (laughs) Yeah, we do not want to get stuck in Gilead, (laughs) y'all. To the break. We're back with Imani Gandhi, senior legal analyst for Rewire News. Imani's specialty is translating how state and federal laws impact our everyday lives, particularly when it comes to reproductive justice. And we wanted to get her take on kind of the other side of this whole legal equation, specifically how women in the Me Too movement and Time's Up are leading the conversations around legal issues of sexual harassment and violence rather than, say, the courts and governments leading the convo. What has surprised you the most, in in a good or a bad way, uh, about these movements, about this wave that we're seeing? I've been really heartened to see the way in which a lot of women and people are standing up against sexual harassment. What I find distressing is the way in which it was whitewashed almost from jump. Um, Once again, this is something that was started by a Black woman and then has been co-opted and sort of reconfigured to almost exclude Black women, women of color, low-income women, people who don't have a platform to to scream about the sort of injustice, the sexual harassment and and other sorts of abuse that they undergo, whether in the workplace or in Hollywood. So I, I'd say that was not a surprise, but it was also disappointing. Also not a surprise, but also disappointing is the, the almost immediate backlash. I mean, we've bar- we're barely a year into the movement and already we're on to, well, has, the, has Me Too gone too far? And who's the next person that Me Too is going to catch up, is going to catch in its grips? And the overt concern about the men who are perpetrators of this sort of behavior and the lack of concern for the women who are victims of it, and also the the unnamed, untold women who have been victims of harassment, who never got a shot to be a screenwriter or an actress or whatever, because those opportunities were taken from them through harassment. And frankly, the almost near eradication or erasure of any male victims is also problematic. I mean, Terry Crews, for example, is like having to file a lawsuit against against his agency because they're not taking him seriously because he's this like totally jacked black dude. And how much of a victim could he really be? Because he's a totally jacked black dude. I mean, I think um, sexual assault in the black community becomes very complicated because then it becomes a situation where talking about sexual harassment perpetrated by Black people becomes tied up in conversations about over-policing of Black men and the ways in which the the ways in which law enforcement interacts with Black men. And so it's just, it's a very messy conversation that um, I think is really harmful, in particular to women of color, to Black women who, on the one hand, do understand that calling the cops involving law enforcement in the lives of Black men can lead to really tragic results. But on the other hand, Black women shouldn't be forced to just suffer and deal with sexual harassment because of the ways in which law enforcement interact with their community. So there are a lot of different issues with respect to Me Too that affect different communities in different ways. And I think that we've gotten to the part where we talk about um, celebrity victims, primarily white victims, and then the rest of that conversation hasn't happened yet because already this pushback by 
white dudes who are probably nervous that they've got some shit in their past that they're waiting to be exposed. And so rather than maybe reckon with what they have done, they're just trying to like, you know, just put, throw a blanket over the whole movement so we can just move on already. It's been too much. Do you see the Me Too and Time Set movements leading to more robust sexual harassment legal protections? Or do you think, I'm, I guess I'm just going to trail off now, like, or will that take something else? <laughs> there are a lot of good sexual harassment protections that are built into the law. The problem is, is if you're, you know, working at a law firm, for example, I'm, I was a lawyer, I worked at a law firm. And let's say I'm being harassed by my partner. The last thing I'm really going to want to do is sue because A, that means I'm not going to have the job that I have anymore. And B, I'm going to be known throughout the legal community as that crazy bitch who sued because someone slapped her ass. And then I become a problem and then I don't get a job. So the problem isn't that the laws aren't there to protect people. The problem is, is that society doesn't allow people to avail themselves of the laws that are meant to protect them because they will suffer adverse consequences in some other way. Um, and lawsuits take forever to to um, to to resolve, right? I mean, you could file a lawsuit today and it won't get resolved for four or five years. So what are you doing for work and to put food on your table and to clothe your kids in those four or five years? It's a real struggle. And do you want to make that sacrifice or do you want to just suck it up and continue to be able to have a job? I mean, I think that's I think changing the culture is going to be more effective than using the law because changing the culture will actual, I think will help more people. I do find it heartening that there are things happening like the inclusion writers and that people have been, um, was it Kate Blanchett or some famous oh, it actress? Was, uh, um, uh, Francis McDormand. Francis yeah. McDormand. Right. So this idea that people who have a lot of clout should be looking after the people who don't have a lot of clout. I think that that is super important. So I think it's important when, and there was, oh, it was Jessica Chastain. I think Jessica Chastain with, I think she did a movie with Octavia Spencer where she basically, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. she had Octavia Spencer's back in terms, I think, of salary. And so I think it's really important for people with privilege to wield their privilege in a way that helps people who don't have privilege. Um, and that takes a level of empathy that I think some people don't have or some people just don't want to be bothered with. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of celeb role models who are doing the work and want to be bothered with it, Amani, a couple weeks ago, I think, on Boom Lawyered, your podcast, you dedicated an episode to Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And could you tell our audience why she is a, quote, absolute boss? Oh, because she has um, she has become the social justice warrior justice. She has been on the forefront in terms of the ways in which communities of colors are being over-policed. And I think that because Trump has spent so much of his the first part of his term focused on screwing immigrants, I don't think he's really gotten around to screwing black people yet. But I really do think that that's coming. I think that the one person who's going to be the bulwark against that is going to be Justice Sotomayor, particularly um, because she wrote a dissent in a case called Utah v. Strife. There was a case where a guy was illegally stopped. Um, the police officer took his license, ran it through his little computer, and found that he had an outstanding traffic ticket. And then based on that outstanding traffic ticket, used that as the basis for a search. It's all bullshit, but 
you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Kagan, you know, all agreed on the first three sections of Sotomayor's opinion. And then she wrote this fourth section where she said, speaking for myself from personal experience and went on to essentially write what a lot of people have called a Black Lives Matter manifesto, where, he, where she cited Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. She cited Ta-Nehisi Coates's article on reparations and really made the connection between between the indignity of being forced to stop for police for no fucking reason and the ways in which those indignities add up and result in the over-policing of communities of color. And I think she's doing that in a way that I know I love Ruth Bader Ginsburg and (laughs) Ruth is giving us a, she's giving us as much as she can, but she does have some blind spots when it comes to race. And Sotomayor, she's sort of, um, People are kind of not really paying attention to her. And they're giving a lot of love to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But I would encourage people to pay more attention to Sotomayor and to listen to that episode because we really did just do like a <laughs> hour-long love letter to her. <laughs> so how do you, especially when it comes to things like uh, Twitter and being being loud, how do you choose your battles in uh, in the best way because obviously especially now like we would just we could just never sleep and keep fighting constantly right yeah i mean from a personal level i've been trying more to interact with people positively because i think that just lends to a more positive view of the world and a more positive view of the activism that will help change the world. I, I, in the past, I've spent far too much time arguing with people whose minds cannot be changed. And I find that to be a real waste of time. Um, my philosophy when I argue with people on Twitter is I'm not necessarily arguing with the person. I'm arguing for the people who are watching, right? So if you're making points or if you're arguing with a person, try to make those points in a way that will appeal to people who may be just watching you have a conversation with a person. And that's really what that's really kind of what I'm all about is explaining stuff that I think might be confusing in a way that's not confusing so that people can they'll have, you know, sort of they, they can add things that I've said, tweets that I've written or articles that I've written to their armory when they're arguing with people. So sometimes it also helps to if you find yourself having the same arguments with people, if you are a journalist or a writer or a blogger, write it out, you know, type mm. something out, make your, write, write something down so that when you get confronted with the same nonsense from the same type of people, you don't lose your sanity by feeling like you need to spend an hour and a half on Twitter responding to every dumbass comment that some anti-choicer is putting in front of you or that some person who is afraid of trans people and thinks trans people shouldn't be able to choose whatever bathroom they want to use. I mean, it's a, writing stuff down is a really good way to debunk nonsense and to maintain your own sanity in the process. And it also seems like a way to sort of like assert your assert your voice, assert your position, because it's not like some of those people who are spewing that fire hose of ignorance all over you are going to have the same type of platform. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, you know, shutting up is free. And if you don't shut up and you say something that is super ignorant or super racist or super misogynistic, I'm going to I have the right to respond. It's hard. Choosing your battles, figuring out how to approach people online is is always a struggle. But I mean, you, you just sort of have to I don't know, you just sort of have to find your own philosophy and stick to it. And I found my philosophy and my philosophy is if you say ignorant, racist shit to me, I'm going to call you out. Um, If you have serious (laughs) questions about privilege or if you don't understand something, I'm more than happy to have a one-on-one conversation, usually, unless I'm just in a bad mood, in which case, don't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, what do you do to lift your own spirits when you get down about the state of the world? Uh, I smoke weed. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yes. Well, thank you so much for all you do and for talking to us today. Oh, thank you thank for having you. me. It was, it was a pleasure. Well, Caroline, what was it like to talk to your Twitter idol? I'm, I'm kind of dying. I mean, like, I do, like I said at the top, hang on her every tweet. Um, because she is just so good at what she does. And she makes all of this, like, scary stuff in the news, like, super accessible and, and easy to understand. And, and honestly, me personally, that anger makes it even more accessible, too. <laughs> What do you mean in terms of like Well, I I identify with it and I like it and it and it feels like it makes me feel validated that like yes, this shit is crazy and it's okay to feel angry. Yeah, so if we review what we learn from Amani about how to argue your case like an enraged feminist lawyer even <laughs> though we may or may not have gone to law school and or have a pituitary tumor. Yes. The the first step is getting pissed, really. Yeah. Because that means you're aware. At least. And so that's the first step. But also, like, once you're aware and angry, you got to get smart about it. You know, learn and educate yourself about how cases move through the courts, about how and what bills are becoming laws, and honestly about the big issues that most enrage you. And finally, though, we've got to get real. Like, there is so much awfulness that could just overwhelm us into inaction. But it's all about focusing our righteous anger and self-education on those meta-issues, like Imani mentioned, like picking our battles wisely and understanding that it's okay that we can't take it all on. And a big thing, Caroline, I personally took away from talking to Imani is how, you know, she really was radicalized politically when the Tea Party was growing in the U.S. and they're super conservative and they put on those, like, revolutionary-era <laughs> costumes and we're always talking about the Constitution. We kind of yeah. made fun of them for it. But the thing is, like, regardless of your politics, like, we should be Constitution thumpers, too. Yeah. Like, it's not a good thing. I'm not proud of the fact that, like, I am cannot quote back to you, the First Amendment. Like, I need to know those things because, especially when it comes to gender equality in the law, like, those rights are so newly won. Like, we've mm -hmm. only been doing this since the 1970s, y'all. Mm -hmm. So, Caroline, I'm going to go Amazon Prime myself, a little powdered wig, uh -huh. and some pocket copies of the Constitution. Yes. <laughs> I like to carry scrolls around. Uh, if I play the fife, will you play the drum? Yes. I have no rhythm. Is that all right? Yes. Okay. Neither do I. Okay. So, listeners, tell us, how do y'all argue your cases? How do you stand up for what you believe in? And how do you keep your eye on all the intersecting balls of issues that are happening in our legal courts? Not just in the U.S., but international listeners, too. We want to know what's going on in y'all's corners of the world. Let us know at hello at unladylike.co. And y'all can find Imani on Twitter at Angry Black Lady and find us at Unladylike Media. And head over to our site, unladylike.co, to get yourself some amazing merch that'll help you literally flick off the patriarchy and pre-order our book. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Mixing and sound design is by Casey Holford. Julie Subrin is our editor. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. And we are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin. 
And next week... Is there any way to make the money conversation sexy? <laughs> um, If you just want to do it swimming in a pool of gold bullion, sure. <laughs> Perfect. We're talking money, honey, with Gabby Dunn. Get rich or die trying and subscribe to our show in the meantime so you don't miss it. And remember, got a problem? Get unladylike. Yeah, we basically know what it does, but do you know what it says? Uh, it says, uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag yes. of the United... Wrong thing? Two paths diverge in a wood. And women aren't allowed on one of them. <laughs> the other one just goes to the kitchen. <laughs> Ladies, that way. Stitcher. Stitcher.